On Good Friday, Christians all across the world remember the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place for our sins. On that day, Jesus of Nazareth, God become a man, laid down his life. Jesus said, no one takes my life, I lay it down. Uh, So all who believe, all who would put their trust in Jesus Christ would be able to receive what the scripture calls the free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, the New Testament scriptures uh, in the Gospels record the actual historical accounts of Jesus' life and the cross and the resurrection, which we'll celebrate on Sunday. And the letters of the apostles largely unpack the meaning of what all of that meant. Yet, the Old Testament, where we find ourselves now, serves us well in predicting the coming of the Messiah and the cross of Christ long before it happened. The title of our message tonight is From Suffering to Salvation, and it comes from Psalm 22, which if we think David is the author, written about a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Psalm 22 is thought to be a messianic psalm. It predicts the coming of the Messiah, and it's written in what theologians call, Bible geeks call, the prophetic perfect, which means that the Bible writer can talk about the past or the present and the future all at the same time. Psalm 22 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. There's over 20 quotations or allusions to it, and they help us understand the cross. But there's something we should see, and while Psalm 22 is a picture of Jesus dying on the cross. And many years ago, we actually did a Good Friday message just on that aspect of Psalm 22. There's much, much more here. It's not just about suffering. It's also about victory. It's not just about Jesus. It's also about King David And dare I say, if it's about King David, it's also about all who put their trust in Jesus. Let me just give you an example of how we might uh, get a little bit pigeonholed in here. And here's the thing. Today we're going to kind of bounce around. You're going to kind of be thinking, is he talking about Jesus or David or us? Look at verse 1 with me. David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, does that sound familiar to you? It would sound familiar to most of us because it's what Jesus cried out on the cross a thousand years later, as recorded in Matthew 27 and Mark chapter 15. Now, if we just take there, we just stop at verse 1, it would be very easy for us to take the rest of this psalm and just focus on the suffering of Jesus on the cross, but we might actually miss some very important things. We might actually meet the good news if that's all we do. We might just see it as just this horrible, sorrowful event and no more. Remember this, very important. Jesus was a Bible reader. Jesus knew the Bible inside and out. (laughs) Can I say that again? And that means 
that Jesus knew all of Psalm 22, not just verse 1. Jesus knew that this psalm moves from sorrow and a lament, which is normally where we stop, and it moves into praise, and it moves into thanksgiving, and it moves into the coming of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, where we now have access to through Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, are you sure about all this? Well, let's think about something. Remember I said it was written a thousand years before Jesus lived. So in between the writing of Psalm 22 and Jesus, a thousand years, what did the people of God do with Psalm 22? I mean, it wasn't like some smart aleck was in the back saying, well, we'll just wait for Jesus to get here and then it'll make it all very easy for us to understand. No, they, they would read it from the vantage point of King David. I think that gives us insight why this psalm was so special to Jesus and for us, even beyond the prophecy of the cross, which is clear, especially in the days in which we live. How David responds to difficulty how Jesus responds to difficulty really shows us how we, through faith, can respond in difficulty and be built up by God. Sunday, we're going to talk about hope in a time when people don't have a lot of hope and the certainty of the hope of the resurrection. And so by reading King David and reciting King David to us, Jesus is showing us how he dealt with the issue of feeling abandoned by God. How he dealt with the issue of a divine delay. This is truly the human part of Jesus that we see. Jesus shows us that what he knows, that what it's like to be a faithful sufferer who is waiting for God, bearing a heavy, heavy heart. Bearing a heavy, heavy burden. And King David's writing is absolutely brilliant. By repeating words and with tremendous graphic imagery, he paints a beautiful picture of his own reflecting upon his own suffering. We know that he had been hunted down by King Saul who tried to kill him when God made David the king. That before he was crowned King David, or before he was ruling the kingdom, before he took the throne, Saul was after David. Also, after he took the throne, his own son Absalom tried to take over the kingdom, and, and he too hunted after King David. But his suffering was markedly different than some of the suffering that we see in Psalm 22. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised King David that one of his descendants would be an eternal king over an eternal kingdom. And here in Psalm 22, the Holy Spirit opens the window to King David and to us of King Jesus' suffering, but also how we are to put it into context. 
by Jesus' day, King David was considered to be a type of messianic king. He was the gold standard of the kings. And Psalm 22 clearly identifies Jesus as the true and coming Messiah king. This king, Jesus Christ, will suffer greatly, but his heavenly father will preserve him and lead him to victory, a victory that the whole world, even though a lot of it sees it now, but one day the whole world will see. Psalm 22 begins with a heading which is actually part of the psalm. It says, to the chief musician. The psalms are, were often sung by the people of God. Sometimes the psalms are referred to as the second temple songbook. And so I would imagine this song moves slowly from, from sort of a sad beginning into a celebration. Set to the deer of the dawn. We don't know what that song was. Some music. A psalm of David. Now, if you're taking notes and following along, we're going to divide this psalm into three different places. It could be in two, but but I want to do it three just to really help it break it up for us and help us to see what he is going through. It begins again, my God, my God. Notice right away David's writing of great intimacy. My God. Jesus would cry out from the cross, my God, my God. And let me ask you this simple question. Is he your God? He can be if he's not. Or perhaps he doesn't seem like he is right now. Perhaps he seems distant to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Literally it means, why have you left me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? He's like, I'm screaming out to you. Where are you, God? Verse 2. Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. He's saying, Lord, I'm crying to you day and night. So here we see, but we don't really hear what it's like to have that feeling of being forsaken by God. What it's like to have that feeling of being abandoned by God. What is it like? It's like silence. We often think it's about all the bad things that happen to us. But here David tells us, Jesus tells us from the cross, it is the silence of God that is really loud in terms of feeling that God has forsaken you. In Psalm 65, verse 2, King David himself wrote, O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh or all people will come. For a true worshiper of God, for a true follower of Jesus, nothing, nothing is more scary than the silence of God. Nothing is more scary than when you can't hear him. Nothing is more scary than when you open up his word and it seems like there's absolutely nothing there. 
Sometimes I've told the congregation here, this is what it's like for me when I set out to come across and to start a Bible study or a sermon or something like that. I, I read through the text and I start to cry and I'm like, I don't know what to say. God, tell me. And then he comes and he comes and he comes. And then I'm crying what to leave out because God speaks. But when I don't hear, it's very, very scary to me. But even more scary than that is what is it like when it seems like God doesn't hear? And that's where David is now. That's where Jesus is now. What do we do then? And King David and King Jesus both show us in their great suffering, in their greatest suffering, in their deepest darkness, in their fear, in their uncertainty, they cry out to God. And what do they cry out? Why? You know, many of us grew up being taught that it was wrong to question God. 100% categorically not true. Not true. You see, David just did. Jesus just did. One thing in, when you get to teach the Bible that's really great is you come across some really great concepts that carry you for the rest of your life. And I learned from the Psalms and I learned from my brother Job that even when I feel like God is silent, as long as I'm still talking to him, even complaining to him, I'm still okay. It's when you go dark and you don't talk to God. That's when you begin to worry. And so as we hear, we see here in verse 1, God seems far, too far away to hear the loud cry of, for help of his servant. But I don't even think that King David or King Jesus is really even looking for the answer why. I know that sometimes we ask God why, but when we're really up against it, are you looking for why? I'm not looking for why. I'm just looking for God, would you please show up? God, would you please just come? Would you please just come and rescue me? And that is the cry of their heart. Yet in the midst of this perceived painful abandonment, the sufferer walks by faith and is still confident in his God. Remember what we just heard in, voice one, in verse 1 and 2. Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Look at verse 3. But you are holy. Enthroned in the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. In verse 5, he kind of rewords it with emphasis again on our trust in God's deliverance. They cried to you, their forefathers, and were delivered. They trusted in you, and they were not ashamed. Do you see what the psalmist is doing? Do you see what David is doing? Do you see what Jesus knows is the, is the outcome and the progression of this psalm? He's fighting off misery with the memory of God's power. See, his Bible reading once again is paying off. 
He's fighting off his fear with the faithful deliverance of God. He is remembering the character of God and, his, and that his faithful followers, as recorded in history, in the word of God, and how they were delivered. And so in the midst of his despair, he cries out to God, you are holy. You are unique. You are set apart, God, from all others. And why does he know that to be true? He tells us, our fathers trusted you. They cried out to you, and you delivered. And you showed up. Loved ones, did you notice that in his memory of Bible history, three times we're told that the people of God trusted in God in despair? Both King David in his troubles and King Jesus in his life and on the cross knew that trusting God was effective to get God move, to move and was not passive. Did I say that too quickly? Should we back that up and say that again? Up against it, three times the, we're told that the people of God trusted in their God because David knew it, Jesus knew it, the forefathers knew it, the great saints of old knew it, that trust in God is effective and it is not passive. And notice this, friends. Those who trust God cry out to God. In fact, we must cry out to him if we really believe he can help. So you're thinking, oh, I'm crying out to God. I'm, I have such weak faith. God's like, that's not weak faith. That's trust in me. That you're telling me that I'm the only one that can fix this thing. The end of verse 5 says, they trusted in you and they were not ashamed. Shame was a terrible, terrible thing in the ancient world. To lose face, to be ashamed was a horrible, horrible thing. And friends, did you know that Jesus bore your shame on the cross? Most of us just have a few things, a few days in our lives. We think if we didn't have those days, I wouldn't feel this heavy weight of guilt. Jesus comes to you today, friend, and says, you know that shame that you feel? Why don't you give it to me? Put it on me. I'll bear it on the cross for you. King David said, Our forefathers trusted in God, and God delivered them out of trial. Their forefathers were sinful, just like you and I are. Yet Jesus, the one who perfectly trusted, to me that's the most amazing thing about Jesus. The miracles, I get it. The teaching, I get it. To live in perfect 24-7 trust of his heavenly Father, I can't even get my arms around that for a second. And so while the forefathers trusted in God and were delivered out of their trials, Jesus perfectly trusted God and was delivered into trials for our sins. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was the faithful son of God. 
And I can only imagine how the silence of God must have made the cross so much more painful and so much more intense. We said in our studies in Matthew that it it was not the physical pain that was so difficult for Jesus. It was drinking the cup of God's wrath where God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus because of our sin. It was the separation from God that he had never experienced before that was so difficult for him. Verses 6 through 8 remind us of the events we saw in Matthew 27 when Jesus was beaten and then hung on the cross. Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. What does that mean? It means they're hurling insults at him. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord, or Yahweh. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. They treated Jesus like he wasn't even human. Treated like a worthless worm. You know how sometimes when it rains and you see a worm on the sidewalk or on the driveway or something like that. That's what they thought about Jesus. They insulted him. Isaiah 53 tells us 700 years before Jesus lived that he was despised and rejected by men. Even those on the ground at the foot of the cross who said they believed in Yahweh loudly mocked Jesus' faith in Yahweh while Yahweh, they're loud, Yahweh is silent. Perhaps they are accusing Jesus of not trusting the Lord because they think, well, if he trusted in him, certainly God would deliver him the way he delivered our forefathers. Perhaps they're saying to King David and to King Jesus, yeah, you once had God's favor, but not anymore. Yeah, I know, King David, you're the man after God's own heart, but look at you now. You're on the run. Your own son is chasing you down. A terrible father you are. Or to Jesus, He said he was God's son. Well, maybe God was with you at certain parts of your life, but he's certainly not with you now. Psalm 37.5, King David wrote these words, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. (laughs) Is it possible that there were people spitting those very words back in David's face? that he committed his way to the Lord, he trusts in him, and he would bring it to pass? Is it possible that a thousand years later, they're spitting those words in Jesus' face? You said you trusted the Lord? Where is he now? Yet once again, look at verse 9 and 10. Fear is fought back with faith. Before it was history, oh, our forefathers, they trusted in you, and they were delivered. But now, now, We move beyond history to personal experience as he realizes, I'm not a worm, and he speaks to God. Verse 9, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. God here is pictured as a midwife 
I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Friends, don't you see that God could not give up on King David? Don't you see that God could not give up on Jesus? Don't you see that God could not give up on any follower of Jesus who we were told was chosen from the foundation of the world? Having taken such loving care of you in the past, how could he give up on you? Notice how many times David said to God, you, I love it, he's he's telling God and reminding himself who God is to him. And he says, from birth, you cared for me and for my safety. It's a wonderful picture. He says, listen, my mother was delivering me, and you were there in the delivery room. You're the one who caught the baby. You're the one who took me, and you handed me over to my mother so she could hold me. He says, you've always been my God. You've always been my father. You've always been faithful. You've always been worthy of my trust. From the moment of my entry into this harsh, harsh world, you have always been the arms I have fallen into. You have always been my security. You have always been my protector. In verse 11, he comes to his current situation and prays, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Could it be for David? Could it be for Jesus? That for the first time in his life, he realized that something was nearer to him than his heavenly father. And that was trouble. Trouble was actually closer to him, or so it seemed, than God was. David, a lot of his troubles he brought on himself. You and I, a lot of our troubles we bring on ourselves. But Jesus' trouble was because of our sins. So from the abandoned king, we move now to number two, to the attacked king. The attacked king. When we come to verse 12, we note the contrast from his loving father who cared for him as a baby, who answered the the calls of their forefathers. As we see now, an execution is described. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan. Those bulls were known for their strength. Bashan, uh, the people were known for their pride. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. So he's picking these animals that, that really show us and represent power. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. That's a broken pottery. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust 
of death. Here it is very interesting. He's dying and he knows it. And he also knows God might be silent, but God is there. The idea seems to be that the enemies are like beasts and they are surrounding him. There will be no mercy. There will be no escape. He is completely drained. His strength is poured out like water. He says, all my bones are out of joint. Certainly this seems to be the cross. We have nothing in David's life that would lead us to think this, that it was him. In addition to the physical pain, he writes, his, his heart, his courage is melted like wax. There's nothing left in him. He is completely spent. Jesus' body is broken. John 19, and here, tells us that his mouth is dry. Jesus said, I thirst. And there's something else. I experienced this once in my life. And I'm not the guy who's looking for the supernatural under every rock. But the moment I became a Christian, I experienced, and I, and I liken it to the Lord of the Rings movie when you see the, you see the dead people under the water if you were there going towards the, towards the mountain. At that moment, when I became a Christian, I pictured myself being surrounded by the demonic realm. And in the scriptures, we get the picture of Jesus being surrounded by his enemies. But what was surrounding him from the demonic realm? What was that like? Well, in some ways, it was like bulls and it was like roaring lions seeking to devour him. Verse 16, he says, for dogs have surrounded me. Now, in the ancient world, a lot of you know that, that dogs were not pets. They were, they were scavengers looking for dead meat. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's in both Mark 15 and John 20. Historians tell us that crucifixion was not even invented at the time. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Another version says they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast light lots. All four gospel writers record that. Despite the fact that it seems like much of what is happening here is beyond what happened to King David, it could also be we have the Holy Spirit showing him the future, but it could also be his perception of what's going on in his life. His perception of the chaos, which in some sense it means that could be our perception as well as we are living right now in such a chaotic time. Now some of you might object to that. You might say we don't have to worry about chaos. 
We just have to have faith and it's okay. Maybe that's true. Or maybe you're just naive. In his autobiography, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that there'll be times in our lives when we don't know if we're on our head or on our heels. That from the Prince of Preachers. There's going to be times in our lives when we're, we'll say we don't know which end is up. We don't know whether we're coming or we're going. We have no idea what's going on. We don't know what, what we're doing. Perhaps you're too spiritual for such type of talk. Not me. When I see things like this or I read things like this, this helps me cling to God in dark times even when he seems very far away, even when, he, when it seems like there's no way out. Yet, surrounded. Verse 19, he cries out in faith again. So what, would you see the pattern? It's not going well, I cry out in faith. It's not going well, I cry out in faith. I feel abandoned, I cry out in faith. I feel surrounded, I cry out in faith. I feel there's no way out, I feel trapped, I cry out in faith. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. What is he doing? He's clinging to the Lord's strength, not his own. Look at verse 20. After he says, hasten to help me, he says, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. This is, a, this is sheer desperation. An urgent plea for help. But then look at how the verse closes. You have answered me. All of a sudden, it turns. It turns. By calling upon the name of the Lord. The scripture says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That can be you tonight, friend. He called upon the name of the Lord. Yes, there's a complaint. Yes, there's, there's wondering what's going on. But he answers each one of his things with calling out to God, remembering the goodness of God, who God is, his character. And that takes us from the abandoned king to the attacked king to number three, the adoring king. Now, you, you say, well, who's adoring? Is King David adoring God because he rescued him from his enemies? Yes. Is King Jesus adoring his father from rescuing him from his enemies? I would say yes. Theologians sometimes point out how little credit we give God the Father for rescuing King Jesus. How little credit we give God the Father for the empty tomb. How little credit we give God the Father for Jesus' ascension to heaven and being seated at the right hand of God. And so first, the psalmist speaks to the people of God. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren, in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Hebrews 2 quotes that in talking about the Messiah. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. Another version says, stand in awe of him. Very similar wording to, to the book of Revelation. All you offspring of Israel. Verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. That's in Hebrews 5. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Right now, are you poor spiritually? Are you hungering? And do you need satisfaction? Praise him. Recount his wonderful deeds, his wonderful works. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. And so the one who felt abandoned, the one who was dying, now is reflecting on the joy of his salvation on eternal life. And despite what is often our sadness about the cross, this is pure praise. This is the joy of victory. This is the wonder of the deliverance from death. Once surrounded by his enemies, he has now been rescued. Now he is surrounded by his brothers. The expression, declare your name, means to tell people about God's saving deeds or to praise the name of the Lord. King David wants to share the good news of God his Savior with the people of God, which he calls the assembly. Why would he want to do that? Why does God do that so often for us in the Bible? To grow our faith, to enlarge our hearts towards God, to help us to trust him more. And so let me ask you, friend, when you think on this Good Friday of Jesus Christ dying on the cross in your place for your sins, is your heart enlarged? Are your affections for him, as you look at that cross and you realize, that should have been me, are your affections for him greatly increased? But he also says, in verse 23, that he calls others who fear the Lord. He calls them to trust the Lord. He calls them to depend on the Lord. He calls them to worship the Lord. He calls them to participate, to engage in the worship of the victorious God who saves his people from their sins, saves their, his people from the enemy of death. And this is actually a command from God. Praise him. Glorify him, fear him, revere him, stand in awe of him. Why, you say, is King David so passionate? Because at the beginning of the psalm, he thought God had forgotten him and abandoned him. Oh, not so. Not so. And Jesus knew that from start to finish. He knew he was living out Psalm 22 on the cross that weekend. Verse 24, David says, 
the good Lord didn't despise me. He didn't forget me. He didn't hide his face from me. It just seemed that way. And though, loved ones, you might feel that God is done with you, he is not. Did you hear that? You might fear he is done with you, but he is not. You can use that right now. And not only can you use that right now, you can put that in your pocket. You can tuck that in your Bible. And you can save it for later because you're going to need it. The interesting thing is, although God may seem absent, our praising of him actually proves that he's not. You say, but I can't praise him. I'm so afraid. I'm so anxious. Notice King David finds hope and strength in the worshiping community. Even when you're down, come to church where God's name and power is proclaimed. Do you know that's why we're doing online services? That's why. Because we want to bring you back here with us, spiritually speaking, to the place where God's name and God's power is proclaimed. Verse 27, he says, all the ends of the world. So he moves from his assembly of people in the temple of God to out to the worldwide evangelistic program of God. This, that same wording is from Acts 1. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Why? Why will they do that? For all the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over all the nations. Also from the book, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. He goes on, verse 29, All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Everybody, every, all knees will bow at the name of Jesus. You will either do it in this life and go to heaven or do it in the next life and live in a Christless eternity in hell. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord. That's Adonai, another name of God. That's the 10th mention of the name of God. Uh, it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. In John 19, Jesus said this, it is finished. He has done this. Here the psalmist sees all of history bowing to the Lord. Why? He has done this. He has done what? He has accomplished the redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins and the saving from death of all of his people. How? Through the cross 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the finished work of the forsaken one, God rescues people who put their trust in him from all the ends of the world. He rescues them from death. Friend, let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you trust the same God who rose Jesus from the dead will raise you from the dead? Jesus believed it. That's why he's quoting this psalm from the cross. Because Jesus knew the end of the psalm. And it was the glory that we would, ex- that we would experience in the kingdom of heaven. Several times Jesus told the apostles that he would die on the cross uh, and rise from the dead, but they just couldn't get their arms around it. Couldn't grasp it. It didn't grasp them. Has it grasped you? Can you get your arms around it? You see, the whole time Jesus knew Easter was coming and their their whole trip to Jerusalem and him telling the apostles what was going to happen, he knew Easter was coming and Jesus knows that if you put your trust in him, you too will be raised from the dead. That's why after Jesus rose from the dead, he commissioned the apostles and the church to preach the good news of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to the entirety of the world. And what is the message? Once again, he has done this. The message is is that the kingdom of God is attainable because the king has risen from the dead. And today, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, he invites you in to the kingdom. Right now we live in scary times. It's easy to feel abandoned by God. But as we often say, Jesus was forsaken on the cross so those who trust in him will never ever be forsaken by God. Even in the darkest moment of the cross, Jesus was confident in his heavenly Father's plan for the future. May we be confident as well. Tonight, because of the cross, Jesus invites you to that better day, to the world of he has done it, or as Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. There is nothing left to be done for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be raised from the dead, other than to respond to the message with faith and trust in Jesus. Tonight, Jesus invites you to the cross that we may all look upon him whom they have pierced. And as we look, as we gaze, we are to realize, we are to admit that it was your sin, that it was my sin, that was the reason that Jesus was crucified. But it is also the reason why we can stand in the next life before a holy God unashamed. Tonight, Jesus invites you to see that Jesus suffered for your sins. He took the punishment 
for your sins instead of you. When we say Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that's what it means. It means instead of us. But here's the reality. We've seen it all throughout this psalm. There is only two responses. One, which I hope you will not choose, is mockery. You say, I'm not, I'm not going to mock him. This is serious stuff, Pastor Jim. Not to choose him is to mock him. And if you don't mock him, then the other choice is for you to personally put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. As we often say around here at our church, you can't be too bad for Jesus. You can only be too proud. And so now Jesus calls you to come. To come. To come. Jesus said, if you are heavy laden, if you are burdened down with all kinds of stuff, come to him. His yoke, his, what he puts on your shoulders, is easy. His burden is light. Are you heavy-hearted? Is your sin weighing you down? Do you feel like you're carrying a backpack full of bricks? You can't just do it anymore? Come to him tonight. Come. Come to the one who died on the cross for you. Come to the one who suffered to offer you salvation and the guarantee that it will take, that it will work, is because his Father rose him from the dead. And it is for Jesus' dying on the cross, it is for his heavenly Father giving him to us and raising him from the dead, and as we'll talk about Sunday, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's why we who are his, adore our Lord. And this night, we remember his sacrifice on the cross. Well, let's pray.